0: Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Hello, welcome to the show. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for this week. Thanks for joining us on the Health and Wellness Show. Uh, joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet today, uh, Doug. Erica and Gabby, and Tiffany, unfortunately, is not going to be with us today. Um, today, our topic is uh, sugar. We're going to be talking about the uh, the ins and outs of sugar, uh, where it hides in your diet, uh, how much sugar you're actually having, even though you may not realize it, uh, what are some of the addictive properties of sugar, and uh, how to understand um, some of the more vague uh, points about sugar and where you find it, you know, fructose glucose, sucrose, um, what are those things, what do they mean? Um, but first, we're going to start the show with some connecting the dots uh, from this week in the health news, and uh, Gabby had an article she wanted to cover uh, today regarding statins.
1: Yes, that's right. On uh, the news this week, Parkinson's linked to statins, calls to end widespread use of the drug. Basically, it's a study um, that found that those who take cholesterol-lowering drugs are more than twice as likely to develop Parkinson's disease than those who do not. This was a study covering plus 20 years with over 16,000 people, and it translated into 150,000 extra patients in the UK with Parkinson's disease. So, there was another study linked in that same article showing how statin drugs increase the risk of diabetes by 46%. Well, hardly this is any news because statin drugs are associated with, well, like, over 300 adverse effects, including cataracts, fatigue, memory loss, yeah. coronary aortic calcification, which is, like, you know, crazy because statins are prescribed to prevent precisely those. Yeah. Well, so it's hardly any news but perhaps the important thing about this uh, article is that um, this study prompted calls to end widespread use of the, of of, of statin drugs by the deputy chairman of the British Medical Association, uh, Dr. Kailash Chan. And it also shows how most people distrust statin drugs that are surveys in the UK, uh, which shows how mo- most doctors, like over two-thirds, disregard mainstream guidelines uh, advice to offer statins to more patients. So, this article also highlights, you know, the vital role that cholesterol has in our organism, you know, it's very important for our brain, our immunity, hormone production, tissue integrity, and it just shows how people are very aware, you know, people distrust the statin drugs, so stop pushing them. (laughs) So, yes. Yes.
2: But it's funny because even though there's, uh, you know, it's a, this kind of widespread mistrust, it's still big pharma's like number one selling pharmaceutical drug. So, I mean, obviously there's some kind of disconnect there, you know, like there's all these people saying that we have to stop using these, you know, and, and they're mainstream people too. I mean, it's like the mainstream medical association. It's not like, you know, fringe alternative uh, type people who are saying this. But, um, yeah. you know, there, there's a lot of, of, of resistance to these drugs. Yet, for some reason, it's still the number one selling drug out there. You know, you still have, like, some mainstream doctors saying, uh, we need to put these in the water supply because they're so good. So,
1: yeah, yeah I also disconnected suspect for sure. That, yeah, I also suspect that in the U.S., it's still much more prescribed than in the U.K., like, you know, in the yeah. U.K., the service really truly show that they don't just, they don't trust these drugs. But I think in the US, either for fear or just to stick to guidelines, it is described more often, I think. hmm.
0: That's
1: my speculation.
0: So it seems like just another fallback to, um, kind of the, the standard mode of thinking, um, was, you know, the, the mainstream medical establishment decides on what they think works. Uh, there's not a whole yeah. lot of critical thought that goes into it after that.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's also the the idea of kind of turning around a, a, an ocean liner. You know, it's it's like it's sure. stretched this, this behemoth and like, you know, it's been, what, 50 years of the same kind of idea that cholesterol is bad, et cetera, et cetera, and trying to actually you know circumvent that despite the fact that so much evidence is coming out right now about um uh cholesterol not being at, at the very least not being that bad a lot of people actually coming out and saying it's good um and you know despite all the kind of publicity this is getting right now it still is taking forever to kind of slow down this this path that that we're on um it's like the momentum is just so great from it that it's just it takes it takes uh, a lot of energy to try and uh and turn that around yeah.
1: Yeah. I suspect that the setting industries, there's a, the one responsible for the cholesterol myth being still alive today, you know, where there's so much fat against it, you know. Yeah. And I think the British people, I think this is my impression. They are like pioneers because it's the British medical journal, which publishes articles, uh, that speaks good about that and against carbohydrates just like it was like over 50 years ago it is the same trend right now and the Mm. u.s is falling behind that's my impression i believe i believe in mainstream medicine
0: Sure. Yeah.
3: more big pharma
0: (laughs) yeah no kidding (laughs) it just seems like yeah it's it's everywhere if you really uh just in the the marketing and the advertisement of the um Pharmaceuticals. If you look around you, and you know, turn on the TV or turn on the radio, there's always something for some kind of pill. Um, yeah. You know, just saw a new one for what's a new syndrome that they're calling um, overactive bladder. Which huh. you know, never never mind looking into the the roots of the cause. It's just if you pee too much, here's a pill. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah.
3: And and a host of side effects with that, I'm sure
0: sure. No doubt. Yeah. yeah. Well, along the lines well, I, of the, uh, oh, go ahead, Doug.
2: Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I wonder if this overactive bladder is actually just a side effect from another pharmaceutical drug. So they've come up with this one to kind of uh, patch up that that uh, side effect. I, I think that Probably. a lot of the times that's, that's what's going on. You know, people are developing yep. these side effects from the drugs that they're on. And then uh, lo and behold, another uh, another drug comes out that helps with that side effect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It does seem to, to link together that way. Um, just like if you find yourself in the hospital, you know, and one thing goes wrong and they give you a drug and that causes a, a whole host of other things to happen. So they have to give you drugs for those things. And you just yeah. start down this, uh, chain reaction. Um, I guess along the lines of the, uh, the mainstream, uh, Erica has an article that she wanted to cover here. Um, talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, harmful additives in our food and what's going on with that.
3: Yeah, so last week um, on the health and wellness section of SOT, we carried an article called Is the U.S. Fast-Tracking Its Way to a Toxic Nightmare? And this was written by Allison Levy. And in the summary, she explains the EU prohibits many harmful ingredients America allows. But multinational corporations are looking to change that and the TPP would allow them to. So for those who may not know, you can uh, look up what the TPP is or Trans-Pacific Partnership. And um, in 2014, WikiLeaks released a second updated version. And the article says, the TPP is the world's largest economic trade agreement that will, if it comes into force, encompass more than 40% of the world's GDP. The IP Hmm. chapter covers topics from pharmaceuticals, patent registrations, and copyright issues to digital rights. Experts say it will affect freedom of information, civil liberties, and access to medicines globally despite the wide-ranging effects on the global population the tpp is currently being negotiated in total secrecy by 12 countries few people even within the negotiating countries governments have access to the full text of the draft agreement and the public who will who it will affect the most has none at all large corporations however are able to see portions of the text generating a powerful lobby to affect changes on behalf of these groups and bringing developing country members reduced force while the public gets basically no say. So this article um, was talking about uh, a food additive called BHT, and they were talking about how the the EU doesn't allow it, but uh, the U.S. does. And so we have this idea of the precautionary principle, and for those who may not know what it is, it's an approach to risk management, which places the burden of proof um, to demonstrate a product or ingredient safety on the corporations that produce the product Um, prior to the release to the public. Over the last few decades, the U.S. has become lax with this approach, while Europe proceeds with a greater amount of caution. But the contrast may not survive efforts by the U.S. trade representative, Michael Froman, and multinational corporations, which are currently negotiating super trade treaties, happen behind closed doors. So the author of this article says that such treaties are enacted by Congress through what is known as a fast-track legislation meaning that the president negotiates trade agreements and Congress can only approve or disapprove but cannot amend or filibuster the legislation.
1: Mm.
3: And uh, according to sources that the negotiations of this treaty, the provisions in them may well eradicate EU's higher standards. Instead of getting toxic additives like BHT and other questionable chemicals out of American products, The negotiated language will likely harmonize barriers to trade, meaning corporations can put all the bad stuff in European products that they don't now. And so the author goes on to quote a phrase from the GMO labeling movement because, you know, GMOs are a good example of this, um, that we need to safeguard the public's right to know. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about secret trade deals, or the contents in food, shampoo, building products, industrial emissions, knowledge protects us. So they're looking at this um, information as a barrier to trade, right? So if you know what's in your food, you don't want GMOs, you don't want toxic you know, uh, chemicals and additives and vaccines, this is considered a barrier to trade. And so, um, from the perspective of corporations, the less the public knows about their products, the better, right? When when knowledge yeah. deters people from a product or a process, the industry considers that knowledge a barrier to trade. So these new Uber trade deals, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Inve- Investment Partnership, or TTIP. Are posed to be fast-tracked through Congress. So, big chemical companies and pesticide manufacturers—you know, again—all these products uh, that that are coming to be associated with cancer and autism, learning disabilities in children, and a host of other serious illnesses—are um, using these trade agreements to stop gro- government regulations and dangerous chemicals around the globe. And uh, this uh William Warren, he's a senior trade analyst for Friends of the Earth, he just, you know, made a point that uh, when you can't adequately quantify risk, the burden of proof is on the party that would introduce a potentially risky product to show the risk is low enough to avoid harm and then towards individuals and the public. He continues that the precautionary principle is basically being dismantled, as it is in U.S. policy, and companies make it the public's responsibility to show harm. Unless people go to extraordinary lengths to demonstrate a safety problem, corporations have no responsibility to guarantee safety. And just think about you know our discussions on vaccines as, as an element of that, and then GMO foods as well. So uh, Warren says, fast-track trade legislation is a fundamental attack on democracy, and it's frightening. So for all those people outside the U.S. who have these, you know, no GMOs in in their products, especially in Europe, and and I'm not so much sure about Canada, but, you know, this trade Mm -hmm. agreement is going to try and dismantle all that.
0: It's, it's quite insidious. I mean, it, it just makes me think of how little regard there is for health when you look at something like, say, engineering. You know, if you're building a new, um, automobile or some kind of industrial machine, um, you really have to go through a rigorous process to show that the machine or whatever it is, is, is safe, um, that it's not going to explode or leak or, you know, catch on fire. I and mean, you have to prove all of these things before it can be viably brought to market. But when the, when the consideration is the health of humans, um, you know, basically they're saying, screw it. We we don't have to go through those kind of uh, stringent processes. Just get it out there. Let us make money off of it.
3: Yeah.
1: That's a very good point. Yeah. And it
3: goes to show, too, that people, you know, awareness is growing. I mean, we really see this in the GMO food industry, you know, that people have – started to wake up and pay attention and the EU has, you know, not allowed the products in in their country and now this type of trade agreement would just fast track that. So consumers would not have the choice. And because of the lax labeling laws in the US, how would you even know, you know, in your in your own food what you're eating?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, when you can't put Sorry. No, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say it just continues to um, you know accelerate more and more the necessity for people to be aware on their own and to you know avoid these things, do their research, figure out what's going on, what's in their food, what foods are safe, what aren't. Um, you know, in this day and age, we can't rely on any of these kinds of uh, government bodies or or anything like that to uh, to assure that what we're eating is safe. It's a hundred percent up to consumer in this day and age to figure out what um, is safe for them, for their family, um all those sorts of things, so uh yeah, it, it just seems to be accelerating more and more
3: yeah, and one one thing that was really interesting about this article was apparently uh Europeans uh, oppose this deal, obviously, and they' it's being carried in the mainstream media, but um, there's been a complete Blackout in the U.S. about this type of information coming out. Sure. So,
0: well, that we're makes here total to sense.
3: Get the That's information hard. out there. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, it makes sense in in a in an insidious kind of way to me that there would be a blackout uh, in the U.S. because, I mean, you know, even even our quote unquote foodies um, are are more about you know taste and flavor than they are about the actual health and quality of the food. And I'm sure that I'm going to insult some people by saying that. So I'm not trying to qualify everybody into the same category, but I do know um, some people that are really into food, you know, so to speak and ostensibly healthy eating uh, and yet still don't really do the research into the, the sources, you know, of of the things that they're getting and uh, you know, never mind foodies for the average person. Uh, If you can't trust the labels, then, you know, what else do they have? You know, if they're raising kids and they're all in school and they got a job they got to go to and they have other engagements, you just don't have the time to to really look into these things or to go find a, a farmer to get your meat from. You know, I mean, our fast paced society really kind of negates the ability to concentrate on your food and where it's coming from.
2: Yeah, you bring up a really good point there Jonathan and I think the, the the whole foodie movement is kind of a thorn in my side to be perfectly honest because I feel like they are a group who really could be politicized and really kind of get down to um you know what their food is what's in it um but yeah you're right they usually it's, it's all the focus is just on flavor presentation, that kind of thing. It's like a fetishization of food. Um, You know, there there isn't a heck of a lot of care about things like GMOs or, you know, I I mean, a good example of that is uh, the whole molecular gastronomy um, movement where people were using all these kind of scientific techniques to make all these new and interesting foods and using dry ice to make ice cream and like all this other kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, it, it just gets further and further away from an actual nourishing meal to, to use yeah. all these like gadgets and 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 scientific uh chemicals and things like that to make you know like using uh, uh you know some kind of uh um you know uh processed food ingredient to make something into you know a, a a form that's that's new and interesting. So you end up with this um you know one example I can think of is they they use a um a thickener to make um like a uh some kind of, uh, coulee or, or something like a, a red pepper, um, coulee or something into, into these little balls like caviar. And they call it red pepper caviar. But it's like, what, what are you eating? I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's, you know, texture is, is interesting and all that. And it, it, it can do some interesting things as far as that's concerned. But, uh, but you know what? Like, is this nourishing? Are we actually feeding yeah. our bodies things that are, that are good here? So yeah, the, 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 foodies really, yeah, they're kind of, uh, a sticking point for me.
0: Yeah yeah i mean i understand where you're coming from i think and it's unfortunate because even with healthy eating, you can get down with flavor and you can really make mm-hmm. a, an awesome tasting meal that's also nourishing um mm-hmm. but yeah, you know, I agree it's kind of like this it's almost like a the the cirque du soleil of of cooking yes. sometimes exactly i mean i, like I the, 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 yeah. It makes me think of a, a show that I saw some some time ago um, where, you know, I was looking up uh, seafood recipes and one of them was um, crab legs, which since the whole thing happened in the Gulf, I have stopped eating shellfish just because that's my own personal decision on that. But um, uh, the guys, you know, he, I won't name names, but he was like a five star chef and he was very famous and his whole recipe was beer and Old Bay seasoning you know, hmm. to, to cook these crab legs in, and I'm sure they tasted awesome, but you know, it's also totally laden with uh, chemicals and artificial preservatives, and MSG and everything like that. There was no mention of that. Um, so it just, just one example of kind of the direction that seems to go in. Yeah, definitely. Um, so along those lines, we're putting all this stuff into our food. Um, that brings me to this article that Doug was going to talk about the, uh, uh, changes in our brains and, and what's what's causing this um, looks like uh, Science Daily has written about um, Changes in brains over time. Doug you want to go over that?
2: Yeah, sure this uh, article caught my eye. It was published on SOT last week um, It's from Science Daily March 5th. Uh, it was called changes in older brains due to vascular changes rather than neuronal activity um, so the article basically says that previous reported changes um, in the aging brain Usually using uh, fMRI uh, may actually be due to vascular or blood vessel changes rather than changes in, in the neurons themselves. Um, so it was previously thought that you know changes in brain cells are what we are actually seeing in aging brains when uh, you know you start to see a uh, lack in performance um, in a lot of uh, um, older brains. But it's actually saying that um, this recent study found that uh, it actually has more to do with blood vessels than it does with the actual brain cells themselves. Um, So, yeah, so their research showed that uh, age differences in signal amplitude during a task are of a vascular, not neuronal origin. They propose that their method can be used uh, as a robust correction factor to control for vascular differences in fMRI studies. Um, Yeah, so I just thought that was very interesting that it has more to do with kind of the blood vessels than the actual... um, the the actual brain cells. Um, so, just on a related note, there was another article on SOT published back in 2012 called "Dementia: um, Autoantibodies Damage Blood Vessels in the Brain," um, and they basically found that uh, uh, arterial sclerosis, or like the hardening of arteries in the blood vessels of the brain, are what, um, caused by an autoimmune reaction. So autoimmune, just to go over quickly, so these autoantibodies, which are antibodies that attack the body's tissues themselves, um, they're parts of the uh, immune system that mistakenly begin um, to attack the body itself, Um, and in this case, it's the cells of the the vascular system in the brain. Um, And just to tie another one in here, there was another article on SOT from uh, the end of 2013 called Study Breaks Blood-Brain Barriers to Understanding Alzheimer's. And just a quote from this article, it says, vascular dementias, the second leading cause of dementia, are a diverse group of brain disorders caused by a range of blood vessel problems. Brains from Alzheimer's patients often show evidence of vascular disease, including ischemic stroke, small hemorrhages, and diffuse white matter disease, plus a buildup of beta amyloid protein in the vessel walls. Furthermore, previous studies suggest that a genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is linked to blood brain vessel health and integrity. Um, The scientist is quoted as saying our results suggest that damage to the vascular system may be a critical step in the development of full-blown Alzheimer's disease pathology. So I just thought this was interesting because it's kind of a turn away from the idea that there's something wrong with the brain cells themselves and looking more at the blood system of feeding um, the brain. Um, And, you know, we can connect a few dots here. Um, If, if, you know, brain aging is actually a vascular problem, then we could actually address it the same way we address other vascular problems um so cognitive problems might just be yet another symptom of metabolic syndrome in other words um yeah it
4: goes back words, to the nourishing
1: you know like you were saying earlier about the diet so it goes back mm-hmm. to the nourishing problem you know if it's vascular yeah
2: yeah exactly um you know in other words it's the diet um yeah so you know even with the autoimmune condition um, that is linked to diet through uh the whole thing of leaky gut, where it's an inflamed gut lining allows undigested proteins into the bloodstream, um, where they're attacked by the immune system. The immune system remembers these proteins, and some of these proteins actually mimic the body's own proteins in in organ systems and, and whatnot. And you know, presto you've got auto autoimmunity. Um yeah. so I mean, yeah, all these all these different vascular problems, um, you know, people tend to look at um Cognitive problems like Alzheimer's or dementia or any of these sorts of things is a a very separate thing from these metabolic syndrome uh, type things, but it's looking more and more like they're actually quite related. Um, So just as an example, you know, you eat too much fructose, um, you get uh, raises of triglycerides in the bloodstream that leads to insulin resistance, um, and that starts all kinds of problems in the vascular system. And, you know, where those uh, veins and arteries are located... Um, will tend to determine what the actual problem ends up being. And if they're located in the brain, then uh, lo and behold, you've got um, all these cognitive difficulties.
1: Yeah. In yeah. contrast, you know, the way Alzheimer's disease is treated in mainstream medicine, like the focus on molecular passages, neurochemistry, trying to raise levels artificially, and they never
0: look into the diet.
2: Yeah, never look into the diet.
0: Yeah, that, uh, that makes me think of a, a guy who had I'd been looking into recently, Dr. Andrew Molden, M-O-U-L-D-E-N. And, uh, mm. he's, uh, he does work on brain degeneration from vaccines and he's got some really interesting stuff online. And, um, part of his thesis is that, uh, these, uh, chemicals, um, and heavy metals that are in the vaccines are degenerating the vac- vascular system in the brain. So that those tiny, mm-hmm. tiny little pathways um, become, you know, uh, corroded and or they uh, they basically shrivel up so that the the blood is not flowing to the correct places in the brain. And you end up with a bunch of these silent strokes over time. Hmm. Um, and then that results in, you know, cognitive degeneration. Yeah.
2: Interesting thing about Dr. Molden, actually, is he died under some very mysterious circumstances. Um, he's, he's actually no longer with us. He died, I think a
0: couple of years ago.
2: Um, oh, did he? just wow. makes you wonder if maybe he was, uh, you know, digging into the wrong places.
0: Yeah, that's curious. I didn't realize that. I had just stumbled across this stuff the other day.
4: Hmm. Hmm.
0: Well, speaking of one of the, uh, uh, of, you know, these degenerative things that are happening, uh, to our brains and to our bodies, Uh, one of the, uh, one of the oldest and the most commonly used and the most well-known is, um, sugar, which is our topic for today. So we wanted to go over some details about that and just touch on various, um, areas of research into sugar. And, uh, first, I think, uh, one that everybody has heard is, uh, high fructose corn syrup. And, uh, Erica had some material to cover on that, um, do you want to go through that, Erica, a little bit?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so high fructose corn syrup um, and its popularity. Um, we've carried several articles on the science page about high fructose corn syrup. And um, one kind of informational tidbit was carried back in 2009 called The Popularity of High Fructose Corn Syrup. And the truth is not so sweet. So, um, it's the most common sugar used in processed foods. Uh, high fructose corn syrup, or HFCS, origi- originally comes from corn and is subjected to over a dozen mechanical processes and chemical reactions. Um, of course, the corn lobby insists that it's natural because it comes from corn. And uh, the reality is it's Highly toxic and highly chemically produced. Um, It's used in almost every product found at a regular grocery store. And according to Michael Pollan, he wrote several books, but one was called The Omnivore's Dilemma. He says that corn is the biggest legal cash crop in America. It's inexpensive, overproduced, genetically modified and uh, subsidized, right? So it's a big ag Subsidy program. The food industry loves high fructose corn syrup for its low cost, its ability to both extend the shelf life of food and protect frozen foods from freezer burn, and um, it's uh, just being kind of touted as an alternative to processed sugar and sweeteners. Hmm. So it says the more fuel energy and chemicals that go into processing a food the less nutritious and healthy it is. So another kind of uh, author that's written extensively about high fructose corn syrup is Dr. Uh, Hyman. And he wrote an article uh, called The Evils of High Fructose Corn Syrup. And I'm just gonna go through a list of some of the things that he has shared in his article. For one, um according to a CBS report, The average American eats 56 pounds of this high-fructose corn syrup a year. So that's like a a small child's worth. (laughs) Um, You know, it also represents more than 40 percent of caloric sweeteners added to foods and beverage. It contains anywhere from 55 to 90 percent fructose. It increases your appetite and promotes obesity uh, more than regular sugar. It's more addictive than cocaine, huh. and um, it uh, con- contributes to what uh, Dr. Hyman has called diabesity. So it's a combination of diabetes and obesity and um, inflammation. Uh, hmm. The higher doses, and this kind of goes back to what uh Doug was saying, higher doses literally punch holes in the intestinal lining sending these particles into the blood-brain barrier, Doug was mentioning earlier. It contributes to the development and severity of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and it can interfere with your heart's use of minerals, magnesium, copper, and chromium. It's made from GMO corn, which is frightening in and of itself. And then this uh, last little statistic is really quite quite scary uh, back in 2009 some research was done and it was found that um, it contains mercury so it's uh mercury in the high fructose corn syrup is left as a residue in the production of caustic soda which is a key ingredient um, this whistleblower Renee default she was an environmental health officer half of all high-fructose corn syrup tested contained mercury residue. And hmm. according to her uh, statement, exposure to uh, mercury via the high-fructose corn syrup is up to 50 times more than mercury amalgam exposure in children ages 3 to 19. Oh. Wow. She also she also did say that... Uh, children ages 3 to 19 are the largest consumers of high fructose corn syrup so Hmm. this stuff is just straight up evil as he says and there there is uh, a lot more you know people kind of tuned into this you know but if you go into a local grocery store and you want to buy ketchup let's say or any product that's on the shelf, you're gonna notice that it's usually one of the first five ingredients. Hmm. And and they've kind of tried to change the name, calling it different things. But the bottom line is is that this is in almost every single food, at least in the American supermarket.
1: Do hmm. you guys know which are the other names it goes by in North America as ingredients? That-
0: Corn sugar? Is that what they're calling it now? Corn sugar. Yeah. Yeah. I think they they call it just corn syrup too. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah like, there was, I that whole marketing campaign started um, like a year and a half, maybe two years ago, where they were going to try to flip over to calling it corn sugar. And there were actually commercials where, you know, there were yeah. attractive looking people and nice music in the background. And they're like, it's called corn sugar now. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, it was funny. They were totally trying to spin it as natural, you know. Oh, it's totally natural. Yeah. It comes from corn. Corn, what could be more wholesome than that? Yeah. And, uh, but, <laughs> more
3: know. natural than corn.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's an argument in and of itself, really.
3: Yeah, I mean, and you have to be vigilant. Like um, kind of in our family, the joke is don't go to any of the aisles in the middle of the grocery store, right? Because yeah, everything totally. in the middle of the grocery store is packaged or um shelf soluble you know can stay on the shelf for years and so you have to be really vigilant and diligent about reading labels because maybe if it's not in the first five ingredients it's going to be somewhere in there you know in the list of ingredients and um, you know and as Gabby said it's, it's probably being changed to different names because there's there's so much awareness about it happening now
0: yeah yeah, for I sure. I think
2: you know, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think that they've even developed a an organic uh, high fructose corn syrup, so that they can use it in all the the organic packaged foods out there. So if, oh, if wow. that's not, you know, that's and what's organic so in their mind, like non-GMO
1: and I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: well, that I think so. It's, it's the corp- high fructose corn syrup that's not sprayed with
0: pesticides and isn't GMO, but you know, yeah. that that doesn't make it healthy. Yeah. Sugar and the yep. I think that the the corporations are definitely picking up on that. Like that people that people are picking up on that topic. Um, I just saw the other day in the store. There's a new brand of uh, Coke uh, that's got like a green label, and it's called Coke Life. And yeah. um, it says uh, made with natural cane sugar and stevia. Um, oh. And I was just like, hmm. <laughs> so you can. You can still you can still clean the leads on your car battery. It just won't work quite as fast as Coke Classic. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> it reminds me I mean, of McDonald's it, changing changing its color to green from
3: red. I'm like, oh, that's so much better.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, it's all about perception management. You know, I mean, right. the fact that it's in every single type of soda on the market still.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere. Well, that, um, I guess kind of working backwards from high fructose corn syrup, uh, a lot of people may think like, okay, well I know high fructose corn syrup is bad, but you know, why is sugar bad even in, in moderation? You know, I, like my grandparents put sugar in their coffee and things like that, you know, so what's the problem there? But, um, there are a lot of problems just with sugar, uh, by itself. And, uh, Erica, did you have, um, there was another website we talked about earlier called The Fix. Um, yeah, did you so, want to quote a few um, things for that?
3: Yeah. So this, uh, The Fix, um, I quoted them in last week's show about Big Pharma. Um, it's a website about addiction and recovery and legal and illegal drug addiction. And uh, this article was written back in 2014 by Kathy Casada, and it's called Sweet Necessity, the Perils of Sugar Addiction. And so the summary says, telling a sugar addict to stop eating sugar is like telling an alcoholic to stop drinking. According to the Action on Sugar, a group of leading medical and nutrition experts, the sweet substance is bad enough that this year the group called for a 20 to 30% reduction in sugar added to packaged and processed foods over the next three to five years. And uh, this woman, Kathleen DeMasons, PhD, author of the Sugar Addicts Total Recovery Program, said that telling people to stop eating sugar is well-intended and might work for those who are not addicted to it. But it's likely that many people who are obese or who have diabetes type 2 are sugar addicts. Telling them to stop eating sugar is like telling an alcoholic to stop drinking there's much more to it than that. So she goes on uh, to say it's just like alcohol. Um, in a recent study published in 2007 in Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews, reported that in some circumstances, intermittent access to sugar can lead to behavior and neurochemical changes that resemble the effects of substance abuse. Um, and then in another paper in the journal, uh, 2012, um, it suggested that warnings like on alcohol should be placed on products containing sugar. The, the paper included evidence that fructose and glucose in excess can have a toxic effect on the liver, the metabolism of ethanol, the alcohol contained in alcoholic beverages had similarities to the metabolic pathways that fructose took. The Mm -hmm. authors reported that sugar increased the risk for some of the same chronic conditions as alcohol does. So people who get clean from drugs and alcohol gain weight, and it seems they replace that urge with food addiction. So DeMason says she noticed a clear connection between sugar and alcohol while working in a treatment center in the 1980s. I worked with many alcoholics. I'd ask them what they ate. Many said they ate lots of sugar and didn't eat breakfast or regular meals throughout the day. So when she asked them to change their eating habits and improve their nutrition, she saw many improvements. After seeing how healthy nutrition helped many addicts, DeMasons founded the Radiant Recovery Program, a free online community dedicated to healing unbalanced sugar sensitivity. Her work is based on the premise that some people are predisposed to addiction. And this group of people has a type of brain and body chemistry that makes them more vulnerable to addictive substances and behavior. They'll be very drawn to sugar way before they discover alcohol because sugar creates the same biochemical response that alcohol does in the brain. Hmm. And and then she kind of goes on to some information about your brain and body on sugar. And what we've covered in previous shows, all carbohydrates are converted into glucose during digestion. And she goes on to say that Americans are now consuming about 22 teaspoons of added sugar a day. (laughs)
0: Wow.
3: Yeah, so... um, How many? Sorry, how many? Oh, 22 teaspoons of added sugar a day. So that may be in addition to what they're already eating. Mm -hmm. And um, so she says, who's at risk for sugar addiction? people with lower levels of beta endorphin get a more intense reaction when they consume sugar and alcohol because they have more receptors opened up. So they get a bigger hit and a bigger withdrawal when all the extra receptors empty out. And then she goes on to say ways to cut out sugars. And we're going to cover some of that in, in, in our talk today, just But um, the most important thing, she said, is giving your brain the nutrients it needs to heal itself is the most important step in recovery. And she goes on to uh, say eating breakfast is one of the most important things you can do, right, especially a a high-fat breakfast. Mm -hmm. And um, she says this is not a laughing matter. While it may seem far-fetched to compare overeating sugar to problem drinking or drug use, you know, we laugh off sugar addiction and people think they're not addicted. I work with people all over the world who are addicted to sugar and don't know what to do about it. There is a lot of pain associated with this addiction and it's very real. Mm. So, yeah, if anyone wants to check out that article, Sweet Necessity, The Perils of Sugar Addiction, there's a lot of uh, added commentary in the article about sugar as a drug and kind of what it does. And then um, the importance of eating a, a healthy breakfast to kind of help withdraw from from those symptoms, right?
0: Sure. I can definitely attest to that. Um, uh, you know, I can't say that I've been comp- 100% off of sugar for a long time. It, it, finds its way into my diet in, in bits and bites here and there. Um, but I have, I'm nowhere near what I used to eat, you know, or drink in terms of soda. Um, have definitely completely quit drinking any kind of soda. Um, but I remember, you know, the, the first time that I was like, Oh, I need to stop doing this and really cut back on sugar. The cravings were just over the top. Uh, it's just kind of, it's almost consuming. Like you want, you know, cookie or like, Go get a bag of chocolate chips just to you know try to satiate <laughs> that. Um, but th- that I think uh, you know uh, has a lot of metabolic causes, obviously, um, and uh, you know imbalances in the body that um, Doug was going to talk about a little bit here. Do you want, do you want to go into sugar metabolism and insulin spikes? Yeah, we we're going to talk about that for a little bit.
2: Yeah, sure. And I mean, I think it's it's it kind of. Just to segue over a little bit, um, you know, um, a lot of people don't really know how they don't have the information in order to actually get off these sugar um, addictions and, and uh, issues with sugar. You know, people think that as long as they're not drinking soda and candy and all this other kind of stuff that uh, that, you know, they, they don't have this sugar addiction problem. But uh, like Erica was saying, you know, every carbohydrate is um, essentially once your body is digested, it, it's sugar. Um, so really the way to deal with these, these issues is to do a low carb diet, um, specifically to get yourself into ketosis. And, um, we've covered this in past shows, particularly on our show about, uh, ketosis. Um, but there is like a very real difference between sugar metabolism and fat metabolism in the body. So, um, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on this cause we have covered it before, but basically when you eat sugar, um, your blood sugar goes up. Uh, and your body releases insulin in order to get that sugar into the cells um, to be burned as energy. Um, so the issue with that is that um, in burning the sugar, your body actually cre- um, ends up creating a lot more free radicals as a result, just kind of like a byproduct um, than it does versus uh, fat metabolism. So uh, in and of itself, uh, burning sugar is a, uh, an inflammatory diet. Um, that will increase your inflammation just because you are creating so many more of these free radicals. Um, You know, on the other hand, if you were eating fat, you know, when you eat fat, um, your body doesn't release insulin. Um, There's no need for it to. Um, Some fats go directly into the cells for uh, burning. Um, Others need to be broken up first before they can do that. But um, it's a much cleaner burning fuel. Um, Now, because uh, your body uh, has to... Uh, release insulin in order to uh, deal with uh, blood sugar, and it should be pointed out here that that having high blood sugar is actually quite toxic, um, and the body kind of pulls out all the stops in order to get that blood sugar back down, um, and one of the things it will do is um, put fat to the side um, in storage uh, until it has burned all the sugar, because it really needs to get rid of that as quickly as it possibly can. So having high uh, blood sugar regularly by eating a, a high carbohydrate diet um, leads to all kinds of problems, one of them which is uh, glycation. Um, and this is where uh, sugars actually bind onto proteins in the body and cause like uh, a caramelization effect. They actually coat the cells um, and they lead to um, all sorts of problems. I mean, the, the proteins cannot function properly if they're coated in this sugar coating. Um, so that can lead to all sorts of uh, different problems with the body, uh, you know, just it can't perform the tasks that it needs to uh, perform. Uh, there's also tons of information about the detriment of having high insulin regularly. Um, so every time you're eating a meal, you know, your insulin is going up, that, you know, every every time your insulin goes up, basically you're like knocking years off your life. Uh, maybe not years, you know, but, uh, but it does add up. Um, so these insulin spikes, you know, unfortunately, you end up riding this roller coaster where you eat sugar, it raises your, uh, your blood uh, glucose levels, your body releases insulin, um, in many cases releases too much insulin because it's kind of panicking because it's getting such a huge hit all at once, um, and that makes your blood sugar go too low, and then suddenly you go into this panic mode um, because the, the uh, body will actually uh, activate the adrenal glands in order to get the blood sugar back up again to a, a stable level. Um and then that uh you know, you go that's when you, you get that kind of hangry thing where you're hungry and angry and moody and um and of course what you're doing at that point is craving sugar like crazy because you need to get that blood sugar back up again. So it just leads to this this cycle where it's like you know, you have a uh, high-carbohydrate breakfast. Then by, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, you're craving a snack so, or maybe a, a coffee with lots of sugar in it or um, cookies or uh, a pastry or something along those lines. So you eat that. Then your blood sugar drops again. So for lunch, you have more sugar. And then, you know, you have that 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, drop in energy, and uh, you're looking for more sugar to replace that. And it's not necessarily sugar, you know, in in, uh, in quotes there. Uh, it can be any kind of carbohydrate. Um, you know, even even just craving a sandwich or a cre- craving French fries or something like that, it's the same thing. You're still you're still craving sugar is what you're doing. So, yeah, I mean these these are just kind of some of the the, the quick off the top of my head kind of uh, negative uh, properties of, of, of sugar consumption.
3: Yeah, and we that see that. Um, yeah, we see that in just I was saying earlier, grocery stores. You know, people are coming home from work, they're tired, they go into the grocery store, everything's packaged, and they get their hit of high-fructose corn syrup and sugar, and then the process just begins and and continues on and on. Not even the
1: supermarket. You cannot avoid it. You cannot even, you know, walk 20, you you know, 50 meters, and there is, like, there, you know, you know, advertised, mm-hmm. you know, there is candy everywhere, snacks everywhere. People have it in their, in their pockets. Well, 24 hours, you know, it's it's crazy.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 amazing how um our society is is built around this addiction, and that it's you know everything around you is feeding this idea of you know of, oh, why not have a snack? You know, why not have this, have that? You know, it's all just to feed this whole cycle.
3: Yeah, very much agreed on that. You really see it in children, right? So mm-hmm. these, these um, all these foods, uh, marketing to children, fast foods, you know, unhealthy foods. And having worked with children for several years, you can see them, you know, crash and burn. You know, uh, when I worked at Head Start, one of the the uh, things that the USDA did was offer all low-income children chocolate milk first thing <laughs> every morning. And, huh. and we did a campaign trying to get chocolate milk off the menu, and um, they said absolutely not. You know, this is this <laughs> is the milk that we give to these kids, and. Um, you know that's it's it's a low-income food program, and we're we're not gonna take chocolate milk off the menu. You know, and and you're to... me... Yeah. Oh, go no, on, sorry, Gabby. Go on. Oh, no, it just, just see, reminds
1: me how to- how chocolate milk was the uh, Milka, the brand name Milka was the sponsor of the Olympic Games, and you have mm. to read, like I don't know how many bars of chocolate milk in order to get you know a basketball. You know,
3: and <laughs> it's crazy.
1: Oh. Yeah.
3: yeah, and you know, um, it, the the scary thing about chocolate milk is is milk's evil and of itself, and maybe we'll do a whole show on that. But um, the reason it's chocolate milk is it's because all the grade of milk that they can't use, whether it's got pus or uh, toxins in it, and they just add chocolate to it, so you can't see that it's not really white milk anymore. It's now brown mm-hmm. chocolatey milk. So it's the oh. lowest grade possible food they could be giving to these children starting at age three you know so it's just setting up what Doug talked about a lifelong struggle with addiction and then negative health consequences as a result Mm
0: -hmm.
1: ending up with Alzheimer's
0: disease yeah yeah oh that just gives me the shivers to think about when I remember being in high school and eating you know for lunch or for dinner, sometimes it would be a sub-sandwich and a half a gallon of chocolate milk and just down mm-hmm. it, you know, and ugh. <laughs> well, that, uh, Doug, there was uh, some other topics that, that you were going to talk about, the uh, the glycemic index, and I wonder if people are aware mm-hmm. of that term and if you could um, go over that a little bit and what it means and uh, what are some of the myths around the glycemic index?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I guess it was like a couple of decades ago that they, they came out with this, um, this glycemic index. And basically, it's, just, it's a number that's um, associated with a particular type of food that indicates the food's effect on a person's blood glucose level or blood sugar level. So, yeah, it's basically like, you know, they uh, determine it by feeding a food in its pure form to a healthy fasted subject, and then they measure the resulting blood sugar rises. Um, they do that over multiple subjects, and they kind of come up with an average, and that becomes the, the, the glycemic index for that food. So the way they um, record it, the number is usually between 50 and 100, um, and 100 is uh, like it represents the uh, what pu- pure glucose will do to kind of your blood sugar levels. Um, you can find all kinds of uh, charts online that show the glycemic index for like a whole different range of food, uh, from every processed food you can think of to actual natural foods. Um, you know, the idea is that by keeping your glycemic index of foods low, um, you're you're eating healthier because it keeps your insulin levels low, it keeps your blood sugar levels low. Um, it's claimed to be associated with diabetes management, um, improvement in blood lipids like cholesterol levels, and uh, reduced risk of heart attack, although there's some controversy around that. Some people say that there hasn't been actually any findings that have actually showed that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, in in general, foods that have a low glycemic index take longer to digest, so they kind of prolong um, satiety, um, whereas high glycemic index foods uh, cause blood sugar fluctuations. Um, So, I mean, the problem with it, I mean, in and of itself, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, You know, it it, it may not be a a bad idea to have an idea of how a food is going to actually affect your blood uh, sugar levels. Um, but the problem is that, like with most uh, fad diets, and a whole diet did kind of um, crop up around this. There's a bunch of books out by the guy who kind of developed it, um, talking about how to, uh, you know, eat a low glycemic index diet. Um, but the problem is with this is that it's really only looking at a very small part of the issue. Um, so, I mean, like, yeah, glycemic index might be interesting information, but it doesn't really tell you much about whether a food is actually healthy. Um A case in point is fructose, like we were talking about before. And I know Gabby's going to be going into fructose a little bit more. Um, Fructose doesn't actually cause an immediate rise in your blood sugar levels because uh, it needs to be converted by the liver uh, before it can be released. Um, And so it gets released, you know, it's it's kind of petered out by the liver rather than, um, you know, going directly into the bloodstream. But, you know, this doesn't make it good for you. As we were just discussing with the high fructose corn syrup, you know, fructose can have a really detrimental effect on the body. This is why, you know, a, a couple of years ago in uh, health food circles, agave syrup became a really big thing. Everybody was yeah. all um, on board on this agave syrup thing because, oh, it's a low glycemic uh, uh, sweetener. So it started showing up in every single health food you can think of. There's suddenly all this agave syrup. Um, But the problem with the agave syrup is that it's essentially the same thing as uh, high-fructose corn syrup, only maybe not quite as uh, processed, although there's a lot of controversy around that as well, um, because it's really high in fructose. So, yeah, it doesn't have uh, a high glycemic index, but uh, it's, you know, 55 to 95% fructose or something along those lines. Um, Same thing could be said about honey. Honey is mostly fructose, so it doesn't have as big an effect on the, the glycemic index. Um, even, you know, the paleo favorite sweet potatoes, uh, one of the reasons that it's not affecting blood sugar so much is because it has more fructose than it does glucose in it. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we thought all these foods were completely innocuous because they, you know, don't cause this spike in blood sugar, but, um, it's only because they're loaded with fructose. Um, you know, the same thing can be said for a lot of these artificial, uh, sweeteners. You know, um, if you take in something like aspartame, yeah, it doesn't have an effect on your blood sugar levels, but, um... It, uh, it can play absolute havoc with the body in other ways because it's a, it's a dangerous chemical. Uh, we could do an entire show around aspartame and artificial sweeteners, yeah. but most of these artificial sweeteners are the exact same way. You know, by just concentrating on the glycemic index, you're completely, you're narrowing your focus so that you're not noticing all the other kinds of things that go on. I, it's, it's the same kind of thing that happens with the, the calorie counting thing. You know, if you just focus in on the calories, you can really let in a whole bunch of toxic, terrible stuff into your diet just because it's low calorie. Well, it's the same thing with the glycemic index. Um, Yeah. Um, It also, yeah, you know, we here at at SOT are very big proponents of the ketogenic diet, um, and the glycemic index really ignores the total carbohydrate that you're eating. Um, in favor of looking at its quality. So it focuses on things like, you know, anything that has a high fiber content um, that is a complex carbohydrate versus a, a simple carbohydrate um, is going to have uh, less of a glycemic index. And just to quickly go through complex versus simple carbohydrate, a complex carbohydrate is one that, you know, on a molecular level, the carbohydrate chain is more complicated. It has more branches. Um, so it takes longer for the body to break it down. And because it's taking longer for the body to break it down, it's going to enter the bloodstream more slowly, therefore have a lower GI. Um, So simple carbohydrates are the opposite. They're very simple chains, um, and they can be broken down very quickly. So those things, um, you know, end up raising blood sugar uh, much more quickly. But again, focusing on these things, you're not looking at the total amount of carbohydrate that you're getting. And the fact of the matter is, if you're eating too many carbohydrates, you're keeping your insulin levels high, and you are avoiding fat burning, which is you know, the, the ultimate um, you know, state that you want to be in is in a, a fat-burning state. Um, and as long as you're still eating carbohydrates, even if you're keeping them low-GI carbohydrates, you are uh, essentially keeping yourself out of that fat-burning mode, and uh, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of health consequences.
0: Hmm. Well that's
2: I'll just sorry, I'll just point out here quickly yeah. also that, that the uh the paleo ketogenic diet is, you know, just by its nature the lowest uh glycemic index diet that you can possibly do. Because it basically has no carbohydrates on it or very little. Um sure. so, you know, uh meat and fat don't have uh, a glycemic index, they're basically zero. So yeah.
0: Yeah, I've definitely noticed uh since going on to the keto diet, I've been much more sensitive to that. If, uh, you know, like over the holidays, I, I think I had mentioned this previously, I slipped and, you know, I had some, some pie and some cake and, uh, not a ton, but just the little amount that I did have, I noticed it right away. I noticed the, the feeling of, um, just having that, that sugar into my system. Um, so you were talking about fructose. Uh, Gabby, did you want to talk about fructose a little bit as well? And, uh, you were going to talk about yeah, the, think- the cap calorie myth.
1: Yeah, I think you guys covered pretty well. I just want to give a mm. few examples just to, like, you know, portray it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um,
1: like an analogy as above, so below, in this case, as below, so above. You know, to portray the toxic effects of fructose, um, um, we can recall how foie gras is made. You know, foie gras is French for fatty liver. Mm-hmm. And it is made by force feeding ducks or geese large amounts of corn, you know. And their livers grow like six, ten times their size, and the liver is packed with fat. So that's the effect of fructose on the liver. The same with, with human beings, you know. Um, the animals, in the case of wild grass, have to be sacrificed uh, like within a week, otherwise, they will die from, from the disease, you know, <laughs> from the fatty liver. And in humans, you know, it's gotten to the point that fatty liver is so common, that it's uh, the most common cause of chronic liver disease in the developed world. It affects 70 million adults in the U.S., and it is expected to reach epidemic status by the year um, 2030, where 50% of the U.S. population will have it. It's so common Cheers. that people when they uh they have uh an abdomen ultrasound and an ultrasound of the abdomen um it is reported, and you know most doctors will say, "Oh, your ultrasound came back normal. it just has a little fat on your liver, but that's okay. Actually, no, it's not okay. It's a sign that you're you know that you're very ill uh when a person has fatty liver, it doesn't matter if the person is very skinny. If there is fat on the liver, it predicts very strongly the development of diabetes in five years, you know. This was a study mm-hmm. done involving, like, over 11,000 people. Well, it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, it basically, just to to, re, to recapitulate, you know, um, fructose has a very special ability to induce metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance. It includes fat in the liver. And to increase your triglycerides, which is uh correlated with heart disease, it promotes uh, visceral fat, which is also you know related with heart disease and bad you know bad health in general and um uh, it's what's called beer belly basically and uh high blood pressure cancer well very bad health and yes. Uh, I guess. It's so common that, you know, people are saying, oh, no, some fatty liver, that's fun, that's okay.
3: Well, mm, no, the other
1: example, yes, so that's, that's one side of the coin. The other example, ultra-involving, you know, fatty liver is, um, and going back to what Erica was discussing about addiction and alcohol and similarities to fructose, you know, fructose is metabolized very much the same way as ethanol alcohol is considered a toxin for for the liver and um, you know when there's uh, cirrhosis of the liver you know we mostly think uh, of two causes it's either alcohol or it's either a virus hepatitis uh, C virus and uh, there is a growing number of idiopathic uh, causes for for cirrhosis Idiopathic in these, um, uh, in mainstream medicine, means we don't know. We don't know what mm. causes it. So right. now we're looking, you know, closer to fructose and the whole, you know, epidemic of, of fructose addiction that we have as a cause of cirrhosis of the liver, basically. Mm. And, uh, the, for me, the most outrageous thing is that fructose, at least in Europe, or at least, it's, a, it's sold for uh, diabetics and to lose weight, going back to the caloric myth, because it has a very low uh, glycemic index. It can be sold as uh, low in calories. So mm. it is promoted for diabetics, whereas we have all these research showing that, you know, the more amount of fructose you consume, the more diabetes you will have. So yeah. it's totally di- a discon, a complete disconnection between the food industry and and the medical research that we have, and people not knowing not knowing better you know they will they will consume fructose to lose weight to control their diabetes, and when they go to to their medical checkups, they will say but i don't I don't need anything at all, and all my parameters mm-hmm. are getting worse you know I believe the person you know that they're not eating anything at all, it's just maybe they're yeah. eating everything with fructose, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, it should be pointed out too that fructose, sugar itself, like table sugar, is half glucose and half fructose. So a lot of the negative effects of sugar might actually be from the fact that fifty percent of it is is uh, fructose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good yeah. point. Yeah, but it know, comes back to that same thing again with the uh, the glycemic index. You know, people are, are looking at fructose as this alternative because, oh, look, it has a low a low glycemic index. But really, I mean, the whole process that uh, fructose goes through um, in the liver, uh, basically, like, you know, the, the, the liver has a choice where it can either um, convert it to glucose and use that to burn as energy. But chances are, if somebody's eating a high fructose diet, they have a high blood sugar pretty much all the time. So the, the body, uh, the liver converts it to uh, triglycerides instead. Um, which is basically a, a, a fat, um, and there it can yeah. be stored. And where is it going to store it? Well, it'll store it in the in the liver. So then you end up with this fatty liver condition. And I mean, tri- high triglycerides in the blood are correlated, at the very least, with insulin resistance. I'm actually, you know, of the opinion that it probably uh, leads to insulin resistance. Um, I won't get too much into that because it gets complicated. But um, but yeah, this 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 idea that fructose is some sort of healthy alternative couldn't be more um, you know, misguided, and then you know that gets into the whole thing about fruit too. You know, the main the main sugar in most fruits is fructose. So everybody's walking around talking about how healthy these fruits are, when really you're just getting a, a hit of the of of this fructose.
1: Yeah, it takes. Uh, I read that it takes a few scoops of ice cream, or soda, and it will convert the fructose will, be, will get converted into fat in the liver. Just a smaller amount, maybe it gets stored as glucose, but more than that, it, it gets converted in fat. It reminds mm-hmm. me what Erica was saying about the 22 teaspoons of sugar being consumed by, you know, by people nowadays. Mm-hmm.
3: Um,
1: the American Heart Association, you know, has suggested or recommended, you know, that 5% of calories, come, and it should be from added sugars, no more than that. And these are the two thousand calorie diet, it's twenty four grams or six teaspoons, you know. Um, <laughs> a can of Coke has thirty nine grams and a medium sized yogurt it has forty grams. You know, when people are eating wow. yogurt thinking that they will lose weight, well they're <laughs> over the top of the caloric intake from added sugars. Yeah. Uh,
3: Not to mention all the toxic additives in there too, or these low-fat mm-hmm. uh, yogurts like uh, Doug was mentioning with aspartame in it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not even going to
1: the milk proteins of the yogurt.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, what's um, from a from kind of a layperson's perspective here too? What role does lactose play in this? Because lactose is a milk sugar, is that correct?
1: That's right.
0: yeah. Is that also pro- uh, converted into fat when it's processed through the body?
1: It's sugar, you
0: know. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, yeah.
2: You know, I'm not actually sure. I'd have to. I'd have to look that up.
1: There is a, you Yeah, the sugar from milk. Uh, yeah. It has fat as well. If it's not low fat, you know, it should right. have fat. And there is the protein in milk including caffeine, which is the equivalent of gluten in in toxicity and and in addictive properties as well. Yeah, yogurt is among among the worst, you know, food items out there that is extremely popular, you know. You know, Mm -hmm. elderly are forced to eat yogurt, thinking that Hmm. it would be better for their health. That would just, like, yeah, finalize the Alzheimer's disease, so to speak. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll have to b- talk about doing a, a show on milk one of these days coming up or dairy. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, that's a good
0: idea. Um now we had talked before the uh the show a little bit about uh <clears throat> this is an interesting thing that I personally just recently learned about. I had heard about this before, but uh had not really known very much about it. But that um sugar, uh when you get too much sugar in your gut can actually ferment and um when Gabby, you were talking about, uh, fatty liver, um, that, uh, you can actually, even if you're not drinking alcohol, you can like blow positive on, on, uh, on a blood alcohol test, um, because of the fermentation that's happening in your gut with the sugar while it basically sits there and rots. Is that right?
1: Yes. And this was, uh, this was what researching the candida overgrowth problem. You know, when you eat too much sugar, all the fungi in your gut, you know, there's overgrowth, especially candida, but other fungi as well. And I read this case of a person who didn't drink alcohol, but he tested positive on the alcohol test, you know, because he was fermenting the sugar in his gut, you know, (laughs) and it was being converted into alcohol in, in his bloodstream. So, you know, just... Just gives you an idea of how you know of how how many diseases and problems we have. Brain fog, but also like feeling like easy and and drunk just from eating sugar, sure. you know, carbohydrate. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, that I mean, I know the uh, the term sugar buzz is fairly common. Like, whoa, I got mm-hmm. a sugar buzz from that, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that that has.
1: Yeah, it has a, actually there's Robert Lustig. I don't know if I pronounce that right. It's L-U-S-T-I-G. He's a professor of neuroendocrinology in the University of California, um, professor of pediatrics. And he has done research. He's a pioneer researcher on, on fructose. And he called his latest article like fructose is like alcohol or um without the buzz, you know, you don't get like drunk, but you have all the chronic effects from drinking alcohol, just from fructose alone, which is hmm. high uric acid levels, heart disease, metabolic syndrome, you know, fatty liver, and yeah. so forth. So it's the same thing as drinking
3: alcohol.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he comes right out and says that fructose is a poison, that it's not a food. Yeah.
0: is it? I had been thinking Andy Gabby, you mentioned on,
3: earlier. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say he he also he 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 also goes on to say that um, high doses are almost unavoidable in modern society. Like we talked about, like if you don't have the knowledge and awareness, and, and you, you're you're struggling with this sugar addiction, you walk into a grocery store. I mean, it's it's almost unavoidable that you you don't get that hit so to speak
2: yeah i was really yeah, surprised yeah. to find I'm that gonna... uh even even deli meats a lot of times have sugar yes. added to them or condiments what, you know like
1: that's what's going to say I, I have gone into a supermarket for deli meats, and i have gone out empty-handed because all of them had added food food. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: yeah well even the uh, i mean most of the commercially available um ham and uh roast beef is uh Colored with uh, caramel. Huh. Yeah,
2: and I mean, uh, Erica yeah. was mentioning ketchup before. Ketchup is basically high fructose corn syrup with a little bit of t- t- tomato puree added to it. um You know, yeah. all, all these things that you would you'd never expect to see sugar in have sugar or high fructose corn syrup or, or something along those lines. So it's it's right. and it's really funny too when you see in the uh, in the health food industry. You know, they keep on coming up with all these alternative sweeteners and things like that, that are just sugar. You know, the big one right now is coconut sugar. You know, everybody's like, oh, coconut sugar. Yeah, that's great. You know, before it was uh, maple syrup or honey um, or agave. And I mean, I, I think that people really need to be aware that at the end of the day, there really is very little difference. You know, these things are sugar, you know, yeah, you might be getting it from like a cleaner source. It's not from GMO corn. You know, it's from coconuts, which are maybe a little bit, uh, you know, uh, healthier in some ways. But at the end of the day, sugar is sugar, and your body really isn't, um, you know, processing it any differently. It's not having any different effect. So all these people who are loading up on their like, you know, um, healthy, uh, you know, coconut milk ice cream that's sweetened with uh, coconut sugar, you you really aren't doing that much of a difference between that and going to like a dairy clean.
0: Yeah. Well, what, uh, what recommendations can we give to people about, you know, if they do want to like, if they're still eating a lot of sugar or, or any, you know, processed sugar for sure. Um, on how to, uh, to kind of get that sweet taste with, uh, some of the natural sweeteners. Like we were talking about Stevia, um, xylitol, erythritol. Um, you know, what? what is the difference there and, like, how is – what's the metabolism um, involved in, say, sugar alcohols like uh, erythritol?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, basically the idea is that um, these are – sugar alcohols in particular are, um, you know, they, they are uh, natural, but they are not processed the same way as, uh, by your body as actual sugar is. So they don't um, cause an insulin response. Um, They don't tend to be absorbed as a carbohydrate, um, at least not as much. Um, You know, xylitol in and of itself, which is a sugar alcohol, actually has a lot of beneficial um, effects in the body. Uh, It will kill off a lot of um, uh, different bacteria that um, might be pathogenic bacteria. They've done a lot of studies with um, mouth bacteria. Um, and found that uh, xylitol actually kills off the uh, the bacteria that are responsible for causing cavities and uh, and uh, gingivitis and that sort of thing. So you'll see a lot of uh, kind of uh, health-store toothpaste now are sweetened with xylitol a lot of times. Um, mm-hmm. You can get xylitol like breath mints and things like that because they do have this kind of beneficial effect. There haven't been a lot of studies on, um, you know, overgrowth of candida or other bacteria in the digestive tract, but um, I think we can probably safely assume that... Uh, that uh, Xylitol will have kind of a, a beneficial effect in that way. Um, stevia is, is another one, it's a natural, it's an extract from a stevia plant, um, and it's quite sweet. Some people don't find it an agreeable sweetness, like it does have kind of a... Um, some people compare it to something like um, aspartame or something like that, because it has that kind of almost chemical sweetness to it. But. Um, but nonetheless, I, I find that if you use that in conjunction with xylitol, like you kind of use the two together, you get a, a, a kind of like a nice balanced sweetness to things. Um, yep. There's also erythritol, which is another sugar alcohol, um, which uh, I, I don't think it has the same kind of um, effects that xylitol does in terms of being antibacterial. But uh, it, um, it, it. I think it causes less uh, gut disturbance in general. The thing about sugar alcohol is the negative side of them, is if you eat too much of them, they can cause digestive issues. So, um, yeah, I mean, these things need to be used in, um, you know, in moderation. Right? Any, any sweetener does. You know, it's not like right. you can um, get rid of uh, sugar and then suddenly start binging on xylitol or something like that. You really, yeah. really need to use it selectively.
0: Yeah. I know I, I use um, stevia myself, and I try to keep it, um, keep it down because, of course, if I end up using too much, um, then it does have kind of a, almost a metallic taste. A little bit to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, I guess that brings us to, uh, we're, we're a little bit over our one hour mark here. Let's go to, uh, Zoya's pet health segment. We have that queued up and, uh, Zoya's going to tell us a little bit more about how to, uh, maintain the health of your pets in a natural way. Um, so we'll go to her and then we will come back with our recipe of the day, uh, at the end here, which is going to be aioli and how to make your own aioli. And we'll talk a little bit about the um, the origins of that as well, if you're not familiar, similar to mayonnaise. Um, but I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with what aioli is. So we will do that when we come back.
4: Hello, and welcome to the Natural Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to talk about herbal medicine. It is a very broad topic, so it will take several shows to cover. This segment will be an introductory one and also will include the classification of main medicinal herbs and instruction on how to make a basic decoction. So let's talk about herbs. People have been using plants since the dawn of humanity and have been accompanying our lives since then. According to the chemical nature, most herbal remedies are close to the nature of the animal organism. In the course of a long evolution, they adapted for easy assimilation and incorporation into the biochemical processes. The vast majority of of them have unique properties. They are distinguished by good tolerability, very rare development of negative side effects, even with prolonged use. Herbal medicine, or in other words, phytotherapy, greatly enhances the concept of treating the patient, not the disease, through the mobilization of different levels of protection for the body. As its positive effect can be most likely explained by the information theory, which is a manifestation of the unity of flora and fauna of the planet. The current state of affairs is the treatment of animals. In the treatment of animals, requires a reasonable combination of synthetic remedies with more natural ones. This will significantly reduce the toxicity of drugs, the incidence of side effects, and the so-called medication diseases. This can be achieved by widely represented in plants' detoxification properties and the pronounced antitoxic activity. It is known that sick animals instinctively find certain plants and use them to treat various diseases. Herbal medicine is not the prerogative of men. It is an integral part of life support of the entire animal kingdom and probably more typical for animals as their relationship with nature is more harmonious and natural. So, depriving them of this connection, for example, by domesticating, we condemn animals for food substitutes and for treatment with unnatural synthetic means, which entails poorer health of purebred animals. Herbal medicine is a chance to bring our pets to a closer connection with nature and to provide them with humane treatment that sees them as one with the universe. Another advantage of uh, phytotherapeutic agents is that combination with synthetic means increases the therapeutic effect of the treatment. For example, many plants – raspberry, Spanish needles, sage, chamomile, yarrow, uh, etc. – enhance the therapeutic effect of antimicrobials like nitrophorans for the treatment of pyelonephritis, a type of kidney disease. We can quickly obtain clinical effect even without antibiotics with reasonable use of uh, phytotherapeutic agents. With combined therapy, previously ineffective drugs become effective. It is observed not only with nitrofurans and antibiotics. There are cardiotonic, diuretic, anti-epileptic herbs and also herbs that act as antidotes. It is suggested that the mechanism of direction is associated with the restoration of the body's sensitivity and stimulation of its internal reserves, which are not used and may be even suppressed by chemotherapeutic agents. From herbs, were isolated substances like alkaloids, glycosides, a variety of vitamins, essential oils, flavonoids, tannins and more. For example, aspirin, which is a derivative of salicylate found in the bark of white willow, or atropine sulfate, a so-called hormone of the plant belladonna or deadly nightshade, or extract of foxglove, the most valuable medicine for the treatment of cardiovascular diseases. Another example would be poisonous plant curare that is used for anesthesia, etc. The main principle of herbal medicine is based on regulatory action, rather than overwhelming substitutive and symptomatic reaction. It has to do with mobilization of various protective systems, immune, endocrine, detoxification, neural regulation and the implementation of the therapeutic action of endogenous metabolites. The main pharmacological action of plants and especially their combination is the anti-alterative action. They are able to reduce the amount and severity of damage to various organs and tissues or to increase the body's resistance to damaging influences in general. Decoction or solutions made from medicinal plants have their own characteristic features. A gradual, slow development of therapeutic effect. Mild, moderate effect. As a rule, only oral administration or external application. These characteristics are the, uh, characteristics are the factor that determine the indications for the use of herbal medicine. It is usually therapy or prevention of uh, exacerbations of chronic diseases, comorbidities of cardiovascular system, respiratory system and the digestive system, liver, bile ducts, kidneys, urinary tract, and others. Good results are obtained from herbal medicine as a method of repetitive therapy after an illness. Normally, when using those solutions, improvement comes just after a few days, But for chronic diseases, lasting effect is achieved only with prolonged and regular treatment. It should be noted, however, that if used incorrectly, even herbs can cause serious complications. So before you start using them, you should seek the advice of experienced professionals who can recommend the right dosage and method of administration. As a general rule, you should use fresh herbs homegrown or bought in conventional pharmacies. As for classification, here is a list of various main herbs used for medicinal purposes. Uh, pay attention, the list is long. Take note that I try to use common names for every plant, but it's possible that it is called differently in your country. Maybe it will be easier after the segment will be made into an article and posted on Sotnet, and you will be able to search for the proper name on the internet, and also, to be honest, because I'm not sure in all the cases that I pronounce the name of the plants correctly. Let's begin with a cardiovascular group. A lily of the valley, foxglove, hellebore, hawthorn, dill, parsley, lavage, decoction of the root of lavage. Antispasmodic, parsley, lavender, fruit of anise, sweet clover, belladonna or fennel. In the diseases of the liver you can use peppermint, thyme, calendula. Also, uh, milk thistle, very good, especially oil uh, of milk thistle. Uh, In case of, uh, in order to have an anti-flatulence effect, you can use cumin, mint, or dill. In case of enteritis, enterocolitis, or other gastrointestinal problems, you can use cumin. Uh, Anti-inflammatory also, cumin parsley, and fruit of anise. Diuretic effect have plants like uh, flowers of black elderberry, oregano, uh, tarragon, dandelion, juniper, and seeds and roots of celery. In case of kidney stone disease, you can use also celery and parsley. Laxative effect have aloe, borage, flaxseed, lemon balm, rhubarb, calendula. Or um, in other words it's called mar- marigold. Uh, in case of cough you can use cornflower, oak bark, uh, field horse, uh, horsetail, and juice of radish. If you need to lower temperature, body temperature, you can use anise, rosemary, um, viola tricolor, and raspberries, and also St. John wort. In case of allergy, you can use also calendula, nettle, root, chamomile, oak bark, yarrow, and blueberries. Antifungal effect have yarrow, mugwort, calendula, red clover, cottonweed, tansy, St. John wort, and bardock. In case of gastric ulcer, you can use willow herb, calendula. Plants that increase the natural resistance of the body are cranberries, uh, oak bark, uh, shepherd's purse, Plantain, yarrow, uh, chicory, sage, uh, sorrel. Plants that increase appetite are basil, celery, coriander, cumin, dandelion, fennel, and yarrow. Uh, Wound healing. Mm -hmm. healing. Uh, You should in this case apply it externally. It's basil, calendula, and plantain. In case of burns, also you can apply calendula, arnica and stinging nettle. Now, uh, to use as expectorants, you can use decoction of the root elecampane, anise, dill, fennel, mellow, primrose, thyme and majoram. And if you need to soothe a pet, you can use valerian root, but mostly in, for dogs, because the smell of valerian excites cats, because it is similar to the smell of pheromones released by a female cat in heat. Therefore, cats, and especially male cats, respond so rapidly to valerian, and better not to give it to them. Also, catnip that contains active substance nepetalactone, traditionally considered to be sedative, but on many cats, it has a paradoxical effect. They start licking the plant, rub against it, uh, standing as if in stupor, or suddenly start uh, furiously gliding on the floor. Surely, it can be funny, but without any real therapeutic property. So, you can use uh, instead hops, fennel, oregano. Now, uh, neuroses, you can uh, also use melissa, uh, thyme. If you need to do revitalizing balm uh, for a pet, you can use uh, fresh juice uh, of flowers and or herb's nettle, nettle death. If you need to purify the blood, you can use black, uh, flowers of black elderberry. Uh, grass zinnias. Yeah, the, the names here in this category are a bit tricky. Plantain lanceolate. Now if you need to stop bleeding, you can use dead nettle, shepherd's purse, uh, Sophora japonica, and Highlander pepper. Plants that are rich in vitamins are coriander, nettle, wild rose cinnamon, dill, tarragon, St. John wort, fennel, carrots, celery, parsley and anise, and plants that have anti-worm properties uh, are wormwood, tansy, and birch buds. Now, after such a long list, here are short and easy instructions how you can prepare a decoction at home. You can either make it as a tea, meaning one teaspoon in a cup of hot water. Of course, wait for the water to cool till the room's temperature. Or you can also take the same amount of the herb and water and boil it in a pot for several minutes. And again, wait for it to cool down. The amount of the decoction that you should give your pet depends on the herb, their weight and individual sensitivities. Some herbs like Lily of the Valley and foxglove, should be used with extreme caution and in very precise amounts. As father of toxicology, Paracelsus once wrote, Everything is a poison. There is poison in everything. Only the dose makes a thing, not a poison. So, unless it is is a relatively harmless plant like chamomile or oak bark, better consult professional on precise dosage. In general, the rule of one teaspoon being mixed with one cup of water, which amounts to uh, 200 milliliters of water, applies to the average human weight. So, in case of the average cat, you can give them orally in one setting up to 5 milliliters, it's it's one uh, average syringe of chamomile decoction, for example. Also, some infusions or decoctions can be bitter and quite unattractive to the animal. To make things easier, it is recommended to mix the herb with ground meat. Well, this is it for this segment. Hope that you found it useful. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, thank you I Zoya. That it. was awesome. <laughs> well, as as always there's a lot of great information in there. Um so thank you for bringing us that clip, Zoya. Um we uh we're going to wrap up today's show with our recipe uh, which is aioli um and how to make your own aioli at home. Uh it's essentially like mayonnaise. Uh it's spelled a i o l i. Um and the word, for those who might be interested, actually comes from uh, the provincial ALH, uh, garlic, al, um, or in Latin that's allium, uh, plus oil, O-I-L, uh, in Latin is oleum. So aoli uh, essentially means garlic oil. Um, but it's an emulsion, uh, so it's a suspension of small globules of oil uh, and oil-soluble compounds in water, and water-soluble compounds um, so usually egg yolk is used as the emulsifier in aioli so uh, people who have egg sensitivity should be aware of that um, there's a lot of different ways to kind of spice this up and do different things with it but today I'm just going to go over the basic recipe um, and you can kind of play with it to your liking um, <clears throat> so this is my own recipe that I've done uh, for quite a while and I make this a couple times a week uh it comes in real handy especially in a ketogenic diet to get a lot of good oil uh into the diet and i use organic olive oil as a as the base um so what i'll do is take 4 eggs um and separate out the yolks and put those 4 yolks uh into a bowl and put a little bit of salt on top there start with a pinch uh you can do anywhere up to a half a teaspoon or even a teaspoon depending on how much you're going to make um and then I use a hand mixer for this, so like a, a power mixer. Uh, and just start with it on low, um, put it in there to uh, to get the yolks kind of whipped up. And then um, on the side, I'll have uh, a cup of um, extra virgin olive oil, uh, preferably organic. Um, try to make sure that you're getting good oil. Um, and uh, that's something I think we could actually go into in a different show is, is how to discern what kind of oil you're getting uh, when you're shopping at the store. Sometimes olive oil is actually just olive flavored uh, canola oil. So <laughs> the cheap stuff is that you really want to keep an eye out for that. So make sure that you're using real olive oil for this or um, grapeseed oil also works. Um, safflo- safflower oil works um, depending on your taste. But personally I like olive. Um, so I'll have a cup of olive oil on the side and these four egg yolks whipped up in a bowl. And then basically start by adding very tiny bits of oil at the beginning with the mixer going in the egg yolks. So you're you're whipping up the yolks, and you're adding just a couple drops at a time of the olive oil. And you need to be really patient at the beginning, and that can be frustrating. And a lot of times um you're going to end up with a broken emulsion if you add too much oil at the beginning. And I did that a lot, Um but we'll go through in, in a few minutes how to rescue your aioli if that happens. Um so as you're whipping the yolks, add a, a little bit of olive oil just at a time and you'll start to notice that the, the mixture gets a lot more thick um, and begins to um, act almost like a cookie dough. And you'll notice that it goes from being um, smooth to a little bit more um, dense and thick. And when that begins to happen, you can then take your uh acid um, – which can be, uh, I use apple cider vinegar for this. Um, some people use lemon juice. Um, those are the two most common. Um, sometimes it's even nice to actually mix the two, but personally, I usually just use apple cider vinegar. And so once the mixture starts to get really thick and it's actually kind of hard to beat, um, then I'll add, um, about a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar and you can kind of gauge it as you're going. Um, so you'll notice that when you add the the acid into this solution, the emulsion actually breaks down just a little bit and becomes much more smooth and creamy. Um, and then once you do that the first time, you can try to to hit this perfect on the first time. So you you whip the eggs, you add the oil little bits at a time, and then gradually more and more until it gets thick. And then you add the, the vinegar or the lemon juice, um, and then it becomes kind of smooth and creamy oftentimes I actually go back and forth to get the right texture. So I'll, I'll get to the point where I'm adding the vinegar and it smooths out, but then sometimes I might add a little bit too much vinegar and it gets a little bit too, um, thin. So then I can just add a little bit more olive oil on the end of that and it'll thicken back up again. Um, and when you get to the end of this, you know, taste it as you go and see how the flavor is to your liking. Um, and then you can also add um, garlic powder or you can even, if you want to go the whole natural route, you can blend up garlic or do some roasted garlic and throw it in there. Also add some dill. Um, in the past I've made uh, kind of a version of uh tartar sauce by adding chopped up pickles into the mix and then having that with fish or something. Um, so you can really do a lot of different variations on this. Um, if you tolerate nightshades, you can add paprika. Um, and that actually gives it sort of a strange cheesy kind of flavor, which I know sounds odd, but it, it that's what it reminds me of. Um, but basically the, that, that basic, uh, mixture, the aioli mixture, uh, can serve as, um, a base for a wide range of different sauces and you can put it on steak. You can put it on burgers. Um, you can use it with fish. Uh, you can put it on salads, uh, for your dressing. There's a whole bunch of things that you can do with it. And, um, If you do happen to break the emulsion, and you'll know when this happens, if you add too much olive oil at the beginning, uh, you'll notice that they don't stay together in the the egg and the oil don't stay together in the mixture and it'll get clumpy, um, and they'll split apart. So you'll have oil resting by itself in the bowl as well as these kind of little clumps of egg yolk by themselves, not mixed together. If that does happen, don't panic. Um, just take out another bowl and crack you know one or two egg yolks into that other bowl, make sure to separate them from the whites. Um, but then basically start over with your you know quote unquote ruined mixture as if it were the olive oil if that makes sense. so you uh, you have your your uh, your broken emulsion on the side and you have your one or two new egg yolks in the in a new bowl and you pour your broken emulsion in very slowly while you're whipping it with the new egg yolks. And if you do that very carefully, you can actually rescue the mixture and you'll basically just end up with more. Um, so, like I said, don't panic if you do break the emulsion. And if you break the emulsion again and you just can't get it, um, I have also in the past, um, gotten really frustrated with that and basically just threw it into a pan and baked it in the oven. And it comes out like a, uh, basically like a, uh, an omelet dish. Um, that's kind of a last resort if you really can't rescue the aioli itself. So. Um, that's, that's aioli. I hope I didn't go over that too fast and I encourage everybody to give it a shot. It's really nice, uh, to have around as a garnish, um, or a sauce, or like I said, a salad dressing or to use it with a a wide, uh, variety of different meals. And it's a way to get, uh, good fat into your body if you use the good oil as a base. So did you guys have anything to add or personal experiences with, with making aioli?
2: Oh well, I make I well, make mayonnaise mine. pretty regularly, but not not specifically aioli. Um, right on. But uh, yeah, we, we make uh, mayonnaise in the house all the time. Uh, we use cool. it pretty uh, pretty constantly. Um, I found that um, I know in, uh, in in cooking school um, they told us that one egg yolk is good for 250 ml of oil. So um, okay. I, I think I think doing it with the four egg yolks uh, to the one cup of oil is, is a, a safe way to do it because then you have lots of emulsifier there. Um, yeah. And, but if you ever wanted to make maybe a higher quantity, you might even be able to go higher on the oil
0: with it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I like that's, to go higher on the egg yolks to get a lot of fat in there. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And you can add different herbs, like Jonathan was saying. Like, uh, you know, if you uh, like the taste of cilantro, you can make a cilantro aioli or mm-hmm. even basil aioli.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm
1: getting hungry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we also have one uh, that I like to uh, call currioli and basically just mm-hmm. add, uh, add curry powder on the end and it, it comes out mm-hmm. pretty nice. That sounds good. Yeah. That's
1: a great idea.
0: Yeah, you can add pretty much anything to uh to I mean basically I usually just do the, the the basic mixture and then garlic powder, maybe like granulated onion powder, and then salt and pepper. Um but I also really like it with a lot of dill and chopped up pickles too. It comes out nice that way. Yeah. All right, well that's uh that's our show for today. Thank you everybody for tuning in. Um, we look forward to uh, to being on the air again next week, um, same time Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern, and we'll be talking about salt next week. Uh, so today was about sugar, and next week's going to be about salt. And we will go into the uh, the some of the myths surrounding salt and uh, why it's actually a lot better for you than a lot of people have been proclaiming for years. So thanks to uh, to my co-hosts. Today, for being here, and uh, we will see everyone next week. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye. Bye.